0: This morning, open to Matthew chapter five. This morning, we're going to continue where we left off last week, dealing with the seventh commandment and adultery. And I commend those of you who made it back this week. It seems like I thinned the herd out a little bit from last week. Um, Dealing with the first portion there, I'm dealing with um, adultery and and the uh, breaking the seventh commandment. But um, this time, Jesus is going to tackle this issue within the context of marriage. We have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, We're only going to cover two verses in Matthew 5, but we're going to cover a lot of other portions of Scripture in in the context of dealing with this issue. So let's just get right to our Matthew text this morning. Look with me there in Matthew chapter 5, there beginning in verse 31. Jesus continued teaching. He said, It was said, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So this is what was said. This is what the ancients would have been saying. Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, culturally speaking, it's, um, it's probably an obvious, but it was um, something that men did. Men gave certificates of divorce to their wives. Wives were not writing certificates of divorce when Deuteronomy 24 was written and um, and the the cultural context in which this was written it made it extremely difficult for the wife she had no provision she they was an agrarian society there was no you didn't just go down to the to the corner and try to get a job at the local quick trip as a means of provision to provide for yourself and your kids Um, and so oftentimes if a man wrote his wife a certificate of divorce and and pushed her thus outside of his house Um, it led her to another man's arms, and so she would probably seek to be remarried. And so within that certificate of divorce, um, it was an assumed thing that, that the woman, when she left that home, and probably assumed as well for the man, that both of them would be getting remarried within that cultural context. Just keep that as a backdrop. We're going to pull in some other passages to ferret that issue out. So whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Adultery. Now, we need to just get this on the table up front. God hates divorce. We see from Malachi 2.16, God says, For I hate divorce, says Yahweh, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says Yahweh of hosts. So, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal with, Treacherously. God says that if you get married, you are not to deal treacherously with your spouse or, in essence, if you will, with the institution of marriage, which is why pastors say to couples getting married that marriage isn't something to enter into lightly. For the man or woman who covers his garment with wrong or with shame, the, the, the serious displeasure of God then rests upon them. It's a shameful thing. To tear apart what God joined together as one flesh. Which again, this lets us know how seriously God values the covenant of marriage. In which a man and a woman enter by means of covenantal promises before God and before each other and their families. This takes us back to Genesis chapter 2, 20 through 24. The man gave names to all the cattle, the birds of the sky, every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's this one flesh union that in the very beginning with Adam and Eve, the the original intent of God was a one flesh union. Bone of bone, flesh of flesh, the two become one. Sometimes we still live today as though we're two, but from God's perspective, we really need to understand the importance that he places on marriage and the fact that when a man takes a wife, they they leave and they cleave. They shall become one flesh, and this is why pastors also say, "What God has joined together, let what no man put asunder. Let no man separate. Divorce separates this one flesh. Original, creative." intention of God in marriage in God's eyes when a man and his bride get married they are seen as inseparable for life death is that which is to part them and when you deal treacherously with the wife of your youth or with the husband of your youth in such a way so that it leads to divorce you have acted violently against God's created order Tearing apart a one-flesh union and thus incurring great displeasure from the Almighty. It was my, my granddad, Bailey Everett who once told me that with divorce, the bleeding never stops. And as a child of divorce, I've observed that true statement in my own life. The bleeding never stops. When you pull apart what God brought together as one flesh <clears throat> and you tear that one flesh apart... I think truly there is a bleeding that never stops, indeed. And in our two verses, these two little verses we have this morning, we see that Jesus is speaking to this matter of divorce in a way that lets us know that divorce was something that unfortunately, and it is unfortunate, but unfortunately it was something that was happening. But that was not permissible, in accordance with God's law. Look again at verse 31. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, <clears throat> let him give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus is just simply stating or restating this normal cultural tradition of divorce as practiced in the Jewish community, that of Israel, that of giving this certificate of divorce. And here, in a much more condensed version of this, he's restating what was first stated in Deuteronomy 24. And if you look through the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, this is practically one of the only places that you see anything in there with regard to divorce. Notice Deuteronomy 24. Let's look at this together because this would be the place from which Jesus is, is, is speaking. He says, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, Moses writes this. If a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and this is where Jesus pulls in the certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. Verse 2, and she goes out of his house and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband... Turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before Yahweh, and you shall not bring sin on the land which Yahweh your God gives you as an inheritance. So we see in this text in Deuteronomy, and we know from Jewish history, that the issue here is dealing with this phrase of what it means as it says, quote, because he has found some indecency in her. You know, what does that mean? Well, we know from Jewish history that there were two schools of thought that developed from this passage in Deuteronomy. One was referred to the school of Hillel and one was the school of Shammai. And the school of Hillel took a very liberal and a very broad interpretation of this idea that she finds no favor in his eyes and in essence turned this passage into um, a context in which a man could divorce his wife, pretty much for any reason. Now, in our culture, we have a no-cause divorce. It wasn't quite that simple, but it was almost that simple. If the wife uh, burned his breakfast toast and he finds no favor in her eyes because she's not a good cook, then he would place a certificate of divorce in her hand and send her out from his house. And so there was a development within the Jewish culture Uh, from the school of Hillel that made divorce a very easy thing to enter into, a very easy way in which to render apart that one flesh union that God had joined together. Now, the school of Shammai was was much different than that. It took a much narrower view, and it focused in particularly on this word uh, indecency here. And so it basically gave uh, the only reason for which a man could find fault, or an indecency in her, was based on the meaning of this word. And so this word here for indecency from the Hebrew, I was going to have Matt come up here and pronounce this for me, but we'll do that next time, um, is just simply nakedness. And then there's this word right here, uh, pudenda. Is that a new word for you guys? Pudenda. That was a new word for me, so I looked up pudenda, and it just basically said dealing with The private personal parts so nakedness pudenda and that's coming from the brown driver and briggs hebrew english lexicon so i think without needing to elaborate on that too much we kind of get the idea if a husband discovers in his wife that she has exposed her nakedness her pudenda to another man that would be her indecency And it was for that reason, according to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, that men were writing certificates of divorce and sending them out of her house. The school of Shammai was very narrow in their interpretation of that and said basically, in essence, adultery or fornication or some sexual sin likened unto that. Prostitution would be cause to send her out of his house. Now, you may recall this is what Joseph thought he had discovered in Mary when she turned up pregnant. Obviously, she had exposed her nakedness and she became pregnant while obviously claiming to be innocent, uh, which would have been the case. I have no idea how this happened. I have done nothing, and she was correct. And so Joseph, being a righteous man, what did he seek to do privately? Put her away, send her away, until the angel Gabriel shows up and he says, no, no, no. Um, the child is of the Holy Spirit, you're going to name him Jesus, make this right. He's like, yes, sir, yes. And Joseph, being a righteous man and a a Yahweh lover, did that very thing. But we see that this was uh, a traditional thing that even Joseph, perhaps, was seeking to do there with Mary. And so when we get to the end here of this Deuteronomy passage, notice how it seems to be... um, this statement towards the end where it says, he is not allowed to take her again to be his wife. Does that not seem to be a little bit of an odd statement? I mean, if he has claimed to find some indecency in her, now perhaps if he's of the school of Philel, he's just thinking, she burned my toast. And then he turns around and he puts a certificate of divorce in her hand, and he goes out and he takes another wife for himself, and he discovered that that burned toast was actually pretty good by comparison, and he started kind of going, man, I I think I kind of had it a little bit better. The grass all of a sudden that looked greener on the other side is now looking way better back on this other side here. It seems to be like a check in the system here where God is saying, listen, you you need to be absolutely certain before you rend this one flesh union, because that was the original intention in God's mind, let no man separate. So before you just go out and claim some indecency in your wife or come up with some crazy idea for why she's not finding favor in your eyes, you might give it said consideration because you might find yourself in another marriage that's not any better than the first one. And then if you think, well, I'll just go back and take my my first wife back, the scripture is here denying that and says that that's an abomination before Yahweh if you do that because she's been remarried, She's she's consummated another marriage with another man and, and, and in, the, in, in this context, Yahweh is, is saying that would be a defilement. You, you cannot do that. You shall not bring sin on the land of your inheritance which Yahweh your God has given you. So it's a check in the system to make certain that that man doesn't just brush off his first wife for any old reason, the burning of toast, whatever it may be, and, or some form of indecency that perhaps she's not guilty of. Are you certain? And how do you know you're certain that you're certain? Well, it's just a hunch that I have. I saw the way that that guy looked at her, and he kind of smiled, so there must have been some indecency. You you need to make certain, because what God's brought together, no man should be putting asunder. So these two schools emerged kind of historically, and so when we get to verse 31, when Jesus says, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. It's within this Jewish cultural understanding, the school of Hillel, the school of Shammai, the the law of God that, that is being brought to mind here and bearing on the issue at hand. And so then Jesus continues as he moves into verse 32, and he gets a little bit more particular. Notice what he says when he gets to verse 32. So in 31, you heard that it was said, this is what the ancients have said, this is what you've grown up hearing, perhaps the school of Shammai, the school of Hillel, but I say, everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, we need to look at this text. Just again, we, we, we probably are somewhat familiar with this passage. And perhaps we've looked at this passage and understood this passage to, to, to mean, um, and this is what we, I typically hear, is that divorce is never allowed for anybody... Except if one of the partners commits some form of sexual sin, right? Isn't that what you've probably heard? I want you to look at this text again. And we need to keep in mind that this is in the context of Jesus dealing with adultery in a broader sense, the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Okay? So for for the time being, what I want to do is I want us to take this clause right here, except for the reason of unchastity. It's it's inserted here, so the sentence makes sense, even if we just kind of pull this out, and then we'll go back and reinsert this. But let's read this passage this way. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. That kind of lands a little bit differently, doesn't it? Unless, of course, except she's already committed adultery. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, unless she's already committed adultery, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Seems to land just a little bit differently than perhaps the way we've traditionally been accepting of this passage. And a lot of it falls on this verb makes. So I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife Unless, of course, except she's already committed adultery, unchastity, makes her commit adultery. So, if you get divorced from your wife for any other reason than her committing adultery, you're making her commit adultery. So, to the school of Hillel, you say you're going to go and you're going to divorce your wife because she burned your toast, you're making her commit adultery. And the law of God says, thou shalt not commit adultery. And then whoever marries this divorced woman, contextually, it could just be this, this, this wife, and whoever marries her, so it's going to be another man, commits adultery. And the seventh commandment of God says, thou shalt not commit adultery. So it seems that what Jesus is saying here is that divorce is strictly forbidden based on the seventh commandment alone. And as such, both schools were wrong. After all, thou shalt not commit adultery. And no matter the reason for divorce, it will ultimately at some point lead to adultery. And in that divorce makes a divorced person an adulterer based on the fact, especially in this culture, that remarriage would be a given. Jesus shows that no one gets out of marriage without being in violation of the seventh commandment. No one. And we know that if you've broken one of God's laws, you've broken all of his laws in essence that kind of righteousness isn't enough to merit your own entrance into Jesus' kingdom. He's continually going to show them that they need a righteousness that comes from outside of themselves. So in essence, to the people that Jesus was talking to there on that sermon and on on that mount, more than likely there was a good cadre of them who just realized that they were guilty of adultery and thus in need of forgiveness of sins and thus in need of Repentance. You need Jesus' righteousness freely imputed to your life ledger. Now, we know that that happens by means of regeneration, which is a monergistic work of God alone. Regeneration is not a cooperative work between God and man. Regeneration is a work of God alone. And when God does this work of mercy and grace in the life of any person, it's then and only then that that person can genuinely repent of the sin of adultery or or of any sin uh, before the only true and living God. And it was Jesus who said, if you wish to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you must repent. And so if we're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven... We need the mercy of God. We need the mercy of God that freely falls on sinners to open spiritually blind eyes to see. And without the mercy of God and the grace of God, we will continue to live our lives in accordance with our own fallen hearts, desires, and interests. Et cetera, etc. We may tip our hat to God, we're spiritual beings, that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them from the beginning of the foundation of the world. We know those things are true, so we, we we're spiritual beings, we have a recognition of God, we may tip our hat to God, but what we need is regeneration of the Holy Spirit in order to have genuine repentance. Now again, what about the so-called exception clause for divorce that we've heard so often, um, it seems perhaps that verse two, thir- 32 um, really isn't making an exception clause on the basis of adultery. Now, this word right here, uh, unchastity, is from this Greek word, porneia. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Like, Pornography, pornea. Well, contextually here I'm, I'm i will tell you up front that pornea and pornography are not the same thing. Pornography is a sexual sin, don't get me wrong. But pornea, if you do a if you do a deep dive and a word study on pornea, pornea is the engagement physically the physical engagement in sexual acts of any kind it's mano y mano it's it's a man with a woman a woman with a man it's not just a man with a with his 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 phone screen or his ipad screen or his computer screen though that is a sexual sin and as we discovered last week as we discovered last week that if you have an, an adulterous heart which pornography obviously would indicate to you that you have an adulterous heart, that you're treated before the throne of heaven in the same capacity as if you were a physical adulterer guilty of porneia, of actually engaging in it. You just didn't. You engaged in something less than that. You just enjoyed the screen and perhaps self-pleasure, but you did not commit sexual immorality with another human. And sometimes we wrongly think, that, oh, well, God will think that that's better and and he'll find favor with me. Again, another way of trying to somehow earn pleasure or favor with God. No. If you're guilty of adultery in your heart, you're guilty before the throne of heaven, and, and the word of God says no adulterer will enter the kingdom of heaven. We saw that last week. So porneia is to engage in sexual immorality of any kind, often with implication of prostitution, to engage in illicit sex, to commit fornication, sexual immorality, fornication, prostitution. And this again from Lou and Nida, our Greek-English lexicon. You could go to the TDNT, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, you could go to, to BDAG, you could go to any other lexicon and you're in essence you're going to find the same thing, that it's a physical engagement of sexual impropriety of, of any kind. Which reminds us, I think, to a certain degree of what we saw there in Deuteronomy 24. The uncovering of, of nakedness is a physical act of sexual sin. Now there's another Passage of scripture that Jesus teaches on this that I want to bring to our attention, Uh, and this is going to be later in Matthew, where it's a much more expanded version of what we're dealing with in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19. And I'm sorry that it's really small here, I just didn't, I just wanted to kind of keep it all visually on one page together, if at all possible, so I did. So um, you may need to look in your copy of the Word of God, perhaps, to better see this a little bit. But in Matthew 19, and one of the things that I want you to notice is going to be right here in verse 8. Where it says, here in verse 8, He said to them, because of, well, in 7, Moses commanded, give her this, here's the certificate of divorce. But he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but... This piece right here, but from the beginning, it, wa- it has not been this way. This was not God's original intention for the, uh, the union of marriage. It was a lifetime partnership. It was a one flesh union that no man was to tear apart. Notice what is said in Matthew 19. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce His wife, for any reason at all. School of Hillel. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. So they are no longer two, no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, Jesus said, Let no man separate. So, in answering their question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Jesus says, no. Absolutely not from the beginning. It's a one flesh union. No one should separate that. Divorce, not allowed. They said to him, why then did Moses, in verse 7, command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, because of your sinful heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it has not been this way and i say to you and this is where we get a connection with our matthew 5 passage whoever divorces his wife and here's that same phrase right here except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery the disciple said to him If the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, then it is better not to marry. I think the disciples had a pretty good understanding of the severity of the one flesh union in which there's no out for. Well, there actually is going to be one that the apostle Paul is going to give. We're going to see in 1 Corinthians 7, and that's just simply if an unbeliever abandons the marriage. If you marry an un- if a Christian marries an unbeliever, perhaps they didn't realize it at the time, they didn't do their due diligence or whatever, but they discover in the course of time that, that they did not marry a believer, and this unbeliever decides to leave that marriage and abandon it, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, when giving teaching with regard to what the Lord said on marriage, he says, let the unbeliever go. That's going to be the really the only exception clause that I think we can actually see clearly articulated in the scriptures. The disciples get it. It's better not to marry then. And Jesus, noticed this, verse 11, but he said to them, not all men can accept this statement. That's a hard statement, is it not? You marry a gal, you do not dishonor the, the institution of marriage that God has put in place because it will be a, a violation of the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And if you marry another woman, you commit adultery. But I was the innocent party. She committed adultery. That's right. And so what did we see in Matthew 5.32? Except for the reason of sexual sin, if, if a husband divorces his wife, he makes her Commit adultery, unless she's already committed adultery. You can't make her commit adultery. She's already committed adultery. And so if she's already committed adultery, you're not making her commit adultery. But if she hasn't committed adultery, she just burned your toast, you're going to make her commit adultery because she's going to get married again. And anybody who marries that woman, it's probably this maybe another divorced woman, it's going to be this guy, you're committing adultery. And Jesus says right here, this is a little bit of a condensed version of this, except for immorality. Whoever divorces his wife, so this man who divorces his wife and he marries another woman, that man commits adultery. But I was the innocent party. It doesn't matter. From the beginning, it was a one flesh union. Let no man separate. Genesis 2, right here. You become one flesh. And then there's this really difficult portion right here in verse 12. I'm going to probably have Matt preach on this one. There are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there were eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. So if you can't... If um, I think this goes into the area, well, I was, I'm, I'm born a man and I was born to have sex with a woman. God made me this way. I can't do anything about it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end up committing adultery and fornication. Well, then you might just need to do something like this. Seems to be what the scriptures might be saying. Uh, last week, Jesus said, listen, if you're caught in adultery, take it so seriously that you would do what? You would pluck out, rip out your eye or cut off your hand. Well, here the suggestion might be, uh, a, a little bit different, but nonetheless, take serious measures to put this in check. What does the seventh commandment say? Thou shall not commit adultery. And it seems from the teaching of Scripture and from Jesus himself that divorce, there's no, there's no way of getting out of divorce without committing adultery. And you're saying, well, what if you get divorced? What if you get divorced and you stay single? And you don't consummate another marriage and you were the innocent party? Well, what, did, what does God say? Well, notice how Paul kind of gives some interpretation to what Jesus has to say in 1 Corinthians 7. But to the married I give instruction, not I, but who? Where's Paul getting his teaching from? Jesus. Where was Jesus given teaching with regard to marriage, divorce, and remarriage? Well, I guess we'd say from the Sermon on the Mount, Who is getting it from Deuteronomy 24. Not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. And this idea of not leaving her husband would seem to be an expansion of cultural norms from the Deuteronomy 24 passage. Because here, back in Deuteronomy 24, when Moses was writing that, it would have been unthought of for a woman to leave her husband because she would be leaving with nowhere to go, no support system at all, unless, of course, she had a very generous dad who was willing to overlook the shame of the broken marriage within the community and bring a daughter back into his house. So in Paul's day, some... Years Many years later, we see that the the wife should not leave her husband and we know that the leaving of the husband here has the idea of divorce because notice what it says. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried. So what does leaving entail? It entails divorce. She must then remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And through reconciliation, we get back to... What God's intention was—death separating a man and a wife—and that the husband should not divorce his wife. So Paul, when given some clarative, interpretive words to the church in Corinth about what the Lord had to say with regard to marriage, does not indicate here for two Christians who are married that adultery is somehow an okay exception and you can get divorced because of adultery. Instead, it seems, it says, if you do get divorced, it doesn't give any indication as to what the purpose or reason may be. You need to remain unmarried, single, two Christians. You need to remain single or be reconciled. That would be the heart of God. And perhaps that's why the apostles, the, the, the disciples, the early, before they were apostles, these disciples were saying, it might be better just to stay single then. Who can do that? It seems impossible. Does marriage take a lot of work? That's the, that's the understatement that I've made of anything I've said today. It takes so much work, so much intentionality, so much commitment to God, so much humility before the word of God, so much dying to self. There's so much that we learn and we grow in, in the union of marriage, of Dying to self and putting somebody else's interests and needs ahead of our own and learning to love them, men, like Christ loved the church. It's the hardest thing you will ever do in your life, and it's the greatest testimony you can leave behind for your kids. And so the word of God, it seems, is like saying, if you find yourself in this unmarried state, Stay single and get reconciled, if at all possible. Now again, with the giving out of the certificate of divorce, one of the assumptions were, was going to be that you're going to get remarried. And as such, there's no way of getting out of a marriage without the committing of adultery and the breaking of the law of God, the seventh commandment of not committing adultery. Unless you stay single. and seek reconciliation. That takes more humility than most people are able to muster. And I wanted to, just, do I have time? Barely. I want to throw this passage in here too. This is, so here we got 1 Corinthians seven ten through 11. We're just going back a little bit. First Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. I feel like we just, we, we need to hear this. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, and that seems to be a euphemism for having sexual intercourse with a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, And that by the way in this context women isn't the cutting of the grass and the taking of the trash out no and likewise also the wife to her husband and that ain't just putting food on the table we're talking about talking about sex you need to have your own wife and a woman needs to have her own husband and there are Physical, sexual, let's call them duties here. I kind of tend to think of them as delights, but I guess it could perhaps fall into the case of a duty. And even if it does fall into the case of a duty, it's still biblically a duty. Because the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Oh my goodness, I've heard so much squawking about how God really understands. He's not nice to he, she's. I've heard so much squawking rather than just saying, I'm, in, I'm walking in disobedience to Scripture. Cookies on the bottom shelf. Stop depriving one another, and that would be of sexual pleasure. Stop it! Except by agreement for a time, so that you may be devoted, devote yourselves to prayer. And I'm here to tell you, there's not too many people that can pray that long. I mean, in all honesty, I mean, some guy saying, "I hadn't had sex with my wife in a month." I'm like, "You mean she's still in the prayer closet?" A month later, she hadn't come out of the prayer closet. <laughs> what are you saying to me? Well, no, you know. Come together again so that, huge, Satan. This is where Satan will trip up every marriage and what does he seek to do? Still kill, destroy. So that Satan will not tempt you because of immoralities and because of your lack of self control. It doesn't take responsibility off of a man or off of a woman who's sinning in any any capacity but it gives a blueprint for how you need to go about and think about the actual relationship that you have and you know what if your husband and or your wife perhaps finds themselves in some kind of a sexual sin whether it's adultery or fornication or pornography don't think for one second that they perhaps stand there in isolation if you're not walking in obedience to the word of God in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. Yeah, he's still responsible, but you probably have some culpability as well. There are duties that we have, physical duties to each other, and a husband and a wife must be obedient. Do you see why marriage takes so much hard work? Because it's hard to get into the marriage bed and get happy if you've been biting and gnawing on each other all dang day long. Isn't it? You don't have to answer these questions. These are rhetorical, and you know the answer to them. This is why work, the energy needed to work on your marriage to make it a godly marriage should be the first priority that you get up with every day in submitting yourself to God because what did Paul say about your marriage? Your marriage, Ephesians chapter 5, is a portfolio of Jesus and the church. There's something mysterious about the union between a man and a woman and the Godhead and his design, and this is why it's one flesh, bone and bone, flesh and flesh. Jesus said no one should separate because somehow it's, it's a little model for the angelic world probably to look down on and see how Christ and his bride, the church, are to be functioning and operating together. And Satan is looking to steal, kill, and destroy that. So, we need to be those Um, I, i want it's my prayer that jinx bible church would be known as that church where husbands and wives work so diligently and so hard on their marriage there are no sexual problems within this church at all amen that it's not even mentioned among us pornography not even mentioned among us because we have husbands and wives who are delighting themselves. Not just, it's not just a duty anymore, but they're, they're delighting themselves in the marriage bed that God gave them and they're celebrating in it, in, in it. These kinds of sexual sins are destroying people's lives and marriages all over the landscape within the church. The numbers within the church aren't much better than out in the world. Just do a little research. It's, it's staggering when you see the numbers I was told just last week that among young adults who are going into ministry when interviewed, eight out of ten said they struggled with pornography. Eight out of ten. Does that not just kind of shock the senses a little bit? It's staggering. Still, kill, destroy. And that's what Satan wants to do in your life and with your marriage. And he will use sexual immoralities to take you down faster than anything. Fight. Husband and wife, fight together. Stop making it like the, stop making pornography or sexual sin kind of like, um, what would it be from the Old Testament? The, um, what's that skin disease? Leprosy. It's like in the church, it's like modern day leprosy. Some guy or some gal gets discovered that they've done pornography. Leprosy we cast them aside completely shouldn't be that way there's room for reconciliation there's room for spiritual growth and it takes a lot of courage and strength for a man to confess to other men his need for help to get out of pornography and what man doesn't want to get out Christian man or what woman wouldn't want to get out Christian woman what husband and wife, Christian husband and wife, wouldn't want to have a God honoring marriage bed to the glory of God to where any and all sexual sins were vanquished from their, from their union? Everybody would. So fight for it. Put on the full armor of God every single day. Get on your knees. Plead to God. Find another man or another gal. Iron sharpens iron. It's not a sign of weakness, it's a sign of strength when you can confess your sins one to another. And it's from that position that you can start growth again. Amen? Let's make that the tenor and the tone of Jinx Bible Church. Let no such immoralities even be named among us to the glory of God. And if you're here this morning and you're in your heart of heart, you're feeling like, man, I'm trapped, I'm stuck, there's no way out. There is a way out. And all the words I've said, maybe they've landed more harshly on some than others, depending on what your circumstances may be. My words this morning are not intended to be harshly landed on anybody at all. I'm pleading with you by the mercies of God, please do it right. Find in Christ Jesus life. Repent of your sins and begin again. Begin again. Man, I feel like I need a part two on this, but I can't do that. Y'all got another hour? If you need to leave for some tacos, go ahead. One last question I think I need to answer for us this morning, and there's going to be some questions that you have in your mind that I, I'm probably not answering. You're always welcome to send me an email, text message, phone call, We go get a coffee. We can talk about, this is what I do. I love talking shop. I love talking about the word of God and helping people need it into their lives. That's what I do. But another question that I think when we go back to Matthew 5, 32, that I think needs to be answered and we can do this quickly, is this. When this individual, this everyone here, this man who divorces his wife, unless she's already committed adultery, then he's making her commit adultery, and then when he goes out and gets remarried or some other man marries her, they're committing adultery, the violation of the seventh commandment. Are these individuals forever living in perpetual states of adultery? Or is it a one-time act? It's a pretty big question to answer, wouldn't you say? I think it's a very large question that needs to be answered. And in all of my studying of this topic, I've come to the conclusion as I stand before you today that it's not a perpetual state of adultery in which they live. Have they committed adultery? Did they violate the seventh commandment? Yes. Are they living thus in a perpetual state of living in violation perpetually every single day? No, I don't believe so. Well, what about the person that just tries to use the breaking of the seventh commandment as his, as his way of getting divorced? No, it doesn't grant divorce. It's the, it's the breaking of the seventh commandment. And you're going to have to stand before God someday and give answer for why you broke the seventh commandment. and You committed adultery or fornication or whatever it may be. I do not believe that this leaves a man or a woman. This woman right here, perhaps she got put out for unchastity, and she was actually innocent. She wasn't guilty of the crime that the man was claiming her to be. Uh, but nonetheless, whenever. He divorces her it's going to make her commit adultery because in God's eyes she was one flesh with another man and now she becomes one flesh with another one she adulterated that relationship not maybe you say well not by choice it doesn't matter if it's by choice God doesn't care you violated the seventh commandment she's an adulterer but at the same time it's not a perpetual state of living in adultery it's a one time act and so she asks God to forgive her for not being able through all the efforts and energies and, and, and everything she tried to stay in that marriage it wasn't a, she wasn't able to stay there he handed her a certificate of divorce, sent her out. She had a need to provide for herself and for her family. She remarried another man. She thus committed adultery. She asked God to forgive her for that adultery. And then she lives before God to make that relationship a, a relationship that would glorify and honor God as long as she has breath in her lungs. Same would go true for a man. Are you following me? Is divorce in any capacity, the only one I didn't show us was that First Corinthians 7. You can go and look there about the, the, the abandonment of the unbeliever. But for believers, there is no out for marriage. If you get out, it's in violation of the seventh commandment and no matter how you slice it, you're going to be an adulterer unless the two of you stay single and you seek God and you humble yourselves and you get reconciled to the glory of God. This Church, is how serious God takes the union of marriage and the application of the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, and its application within the context of marriage, divorce, and thus remarriage. Might we strive with every ounce of energy we have to glorify God through our life and through our marriages? Amen? singles, before you get married, you might consider, guys, hey, maybe that life of the eunuch might be better. And if you need some help with that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, But take marriage seriously. Don't enter into that thing lightly. Amen? Let's pray.